We're going to get back into the Advent story. We're going to get back into the, the Christmas story in the beginning of Luke's gospel together this morning. And as we get into that, I want you to think about something with me for a moment, if you can. Something happens to you and it happens to me. When in life, what we experience does not match up to what we expect. You've had this happen. I've had this happen. You have expectations of what's going to happen. And then something, uh, your experience doesn't live up to those expectations. Something begins to happen. And what happens is when our experience does not match our expectations, you and I, we begin to wonder. We begin to ask questions. I'll give you an example. Last week we had, last uh, Saturday night, we had a storm uh, blow through, and I think it sounds like we might have another one this week to look forward to. But last week, we had a storm blow through, and one thing that happened was I was here at church on Sunday morning, and my wife called me, and she said one of the cables, she knew, we didn't know if it was electricity or, or the cable line or whatever, she said one of the cables off the side of our house is down, and it's laying across our yard, and then it's going across, we live on a corner lot, it's going across the side street. And someone put cones there, and cars are kind of very slowly going around the down line, but, but we need to do something about this. So I said, okay, so we finished up church here, and I, and I went home, and I called the cable company. It ended up being the cable line. So I called the cable company, the internet company, and, and, I, and what I expected, this is what I expected. I expected that I would call. This seemed like a very serious situation to me. It was down off our house. It was laying across our grass, and then more importantly, it was laying across the road that people were trying to drive down to get home. And so I called up the cable company, and I said, here's, here's the deal. The storm blew the line off our house. It's laying across the road, and people are having difficulty getting down the road. I expected, when I said that, for the person on the other end to begin to panic and say immediately, we'll have people there within 30 minutes. Don't you worry. We'll get this all fixed. What I experienced was uh, someone saying back to me, okay, I've written it down. We'll call you within 48 hours. And I got off the phone, and I was looking outside, and I'm looking at the cone, and I'm looking at the down, down line, and I'm looking at, at cars, and I'm thinking to myself, if a truck comes down, we're losing internet at our house for, for a couple of days, because they're definitely ripping this thing down. And, and I started to wonder, like, why wasn't this important to them? What, what was going on? And the next day, I didn't get a phone call, and no one came to fix the line. And so I was wondering even more, should we switch companies? Do they not care about their customers? Do they not under, did I not describe the situation properly? Did I not give a good picture of what's actually happening here? Do my neighbors all hate us now? Do they think that we don't take seriously? I actually felt like I should go out to the line and put a sign near the line and just say, I have called and they don't care or something like that. Because I started, all these questions start running up. Do, are they mad at me? Is the cable company understanding? Do, are they, is this the company we should be with? Should we switch providers? All those things begin to happen. And that happens to you too, doesn't it? When what you experience, by the way, they did come and fix it the day after that, but when what you experience doesn't match up to your expectations, you start to wonder. You text somebody. You text a friend. You text a family member. They usually text back immediately. This time they don't. And after an hour, two hours, three hours, your, your mind just starts going, doesn't it? Are they mad at me? Did my text not go through? Did I say something wrong the other day? Is, is, this a, is our relationship broken? Uh, are, are, is, are they okay? Did something happen? And anytime our experience doesn't match our expectations, we start to ask questions. And it happens in our lives, and it certainly happens in our relationship with God. 
Because all of us come to God with certain expectations of who he is and how he should act. And when God begins to act and God starts doing things that we don't expect him to do, that doesn't match up to what what we thought he should do or we think he should do, all of a sudden we begin to ask questions. Is God real? What is he doing? Does he care about me? Did I understand this whole thing when I got into it? And this morning, we are going to meet a group of people who are wondering exactly what God is doing because what is happening is not necessarily meeting up with what their expectations, and so they start to wonder. And we see it start to happen right here in verse 57 of chapter 1. We're talking about the birth of John the Baptist. This is Jesus' first cousin, born to Zachariah and Elizabeth, who we met last week. And here's what happens in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. If you remember last week, John, after he was visited by the angel, could not speak. And so he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him? You have to kind of appreciate where the neighbors and the family members of Zechariah and Elizabeth are coming from. And if you, do, if you weren't with us last week, maybe you'll have to back up and read the beginning of this story. But all they know is this, Zechariah is a priest. He and Elizabeth have no children, and they're too old to have children. Zechariah, as a priest, goes into the temple to give a sacrifice. He comes out of the temple, and he cannot speak. Then they find out a few days later that his wife, or they find out a few months later, that his wife Elizabeth is with child. And no one knows what's going on. All they know is Zechariah went into the temple, he came out of the temple, he could not speak to them, And now a few months later, they find out that his wife, who everyone thought was never going to have children, was barren and too old to have children, is going to have a baby. And so when this is about to happen, everybody gathers around because it's highly unusual and no one can understand what is happening. And then the baby is born and they go to name the baby. And out of nowhere, Elizabeth says the baby's name is John. I don't know that that strikes us the way that it would have uh, hit the people back then because it would have been incredibly unusual for a baby in a family not to take a name that was already in the family. Everyone already knew what this baby was called. This was, this was going to be little Zechariah. Was, there was going to be big Zach, and there was going to be little Zach, and that's just how it was going to be. You have Zechariah Sr. and Zechariah Jr. That's how everybody named their kids. And so when this baby is born, and, the, and Elizabeth says his name is John, because that's the name the angel told Zechariah to name his son, 
The people have no idea what's going on. Now here, dad can't talk. Mom, who we all thought couldn't have children, is having a baby. They want to name him some crazy name. And then the second Zachariah says his name will be John, all of a sudden he can speak. And the people are saying to themselves, what in the world is going on? What is this child going to be? All of a sudden, they're beginning to experience God doing things that they never expected. And the second God started doing things that they didn't expect, they started to ask questions. The only person in this passage that we see that is not asking any questions or wondering what is going on are Zechariah and Elizabeth. Everyone else is wondering. They are confident. And there's something that we're going to learn today about Zechariah and Elizabeth's confidence in what's happening. And if you've ever wondered what God's up to, if you've ever looked at God and wondered why he's not doing what you think he should do, if you've ever asked God to do something and he's done something different and you've been left asking a bunch of questions, you have something to learn this morning. Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, you have something to learn this morning about the confidence that Zechariah and Elizabeth show because their confidence comes from somewhere. Their confidence that they're to name their son John, their confidence in what God is doing, it comes from somewhere. And so we are going to, this morning, take a look at where that confidence comes from together. And those of you who are sitting here right now who are wondering, what is God really up to? Why is God not doing what I think he should do? My prayer is that God's spirit would speak to you this morning. In verse 67, Zechariah begins to speak. He hasn't spoken in about nine months, and now he's speaking. And this is what he says. We're going to read this in two parts. Here's the first part. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I think sometimes it's, it's tough to read these passages and fully appreciate what the, the people are saying about the God that they serve. So let me, let me help to provide some sort of context here. Zechariah, in these first few verses, when he begins to speak about what God is doing and try to answer some of these questions of the people who are sitting there wondering, is he starts to talk about the expectations that the people of God have had for thousands of years as they await a Messiah who was promised to come and to bring deliverance. You know, this text, this Bible, this is one giant story of God creating the world, of that world becoming broken, and of God enacting a plan to redeem that world. And it begins, the story begins with his chosen people. It begins with the Israelites. And way back when, thousands of years before Jesus shows up on this earth, God had made promises to his people. And he had done it specifically through two people that Zechariah mentioned here. 
One, he gave a promise to Abraham. You can go back and read that in Genesis chapter 12. And he says, I'm going to bless you and bless the people that come through you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And anyone who curses you, I will curse. And anyone who blesses you, I will bless. And the Israelites, as they walked through thousands of years of, of, of history of, of having freedom and then being taken over by people like the Babylonians and the Persians and the Egyptians over and over again, they hung on to this promise that one day God would curse those who cursed their nation, and God would bless those who blessed their nation. And he also talks about David here. Some of you know David, even if you haven't been in church much, you know David. He, he, he's the one that killed Goliath. He was a great king, and God made promises to him as well. And he said to him very specifically, David, I will deliver you, and I will deliver my people from their enemies. And you see Zechariah talking about this in the text, that long ago God promised us that we would be delivered from our enemies. Long ago God promised us that whoever cursed us would be cursed and whoever blessed us would be blessed. And we've been hanging on to this promise for all of these years that one day God would send a Messiah, God would send a deliverer who would, who would free us from our enemies and would allow us to worship him without fear, And without any danger. And it's absolutely true that God promised those things. And it was so easy for the Israelites, for the Jewish people to look out, out of their windows and see the oppression that they faced. To see right now the Romans who are in charge over them. And to long for the day that God was going to actually fulfill those promises. That God was going to get rid of the captor and deliver his people. That's what they wanted. That's what they were looking for. The problem with that understanding, as we're going to see when it comes to Zechariah's prophecy, is that it's incomplete. Deliverance from enemies might have been Israel's greatest felt need. But from God's perspective, it was not their greatest need. From Israel's perspective, deliverance from the oppressor, deliverance from the enemy, cursing those who curse us, blessing those who bless us, that was, yes, a part of the promise of God. That was a part of it. And for them, that was the easiest part to, to hang on to because they could look out their window and they could see it every day. As the Roman guards marched down the street, as the Roman officials came and collected taxes, as they, as they destroyed the temple, that was easy to feel. This is what we need God to do. Send a Messiah, send a deliverer, deliver us from these enemies. That was their greatest felt need. The problem was God had promised to send a deliverer, but he's promised to send a deliverer for their greatest need. And in our relationship with God, if you're like me, our relationship with God, if you're like the Israelites, our expectations, your expectations of what God will do most often arise from what you see as your greatest need. Your expectations of what God will do arise from what you see as your greatest need. And so if you're like me, we can be like the Israelite people where God has promised certain things. And we hear the promise that most matches the need that we feel the most. 
So perhaps we need healing or someone close to us needs healing. And we go to God's word and God certainly promises healing. And then that's, that's what we hear. And that's what we hold on to. Our expectation of God becomes that he will definitely heal us or he will definitely heal another person because that's the need that we feel and that's the promise that we hear. Or perhaps it's financial provision or perhaps it's, it's peace or perhaps it's, it's restoration. Whatever the promises that God has, our greatest expectation of what God is going to do arises from what we understand as our greatest need. And there is nothing wrong There is nothing wrong with expecting God to deliver on the promises that he has given us. There's nothing wrong with the Israelite people expecting that God would deliver them from their enemies. But only expecting God to act on what we understand as our greatest needs is incomplete. It's not the whole picture. When we expect that God's only going to act on behalf of of the needs that we feel the most, we will constantly end up wondering. And in our relationship with God, it is so much easier to go to the window and to look out of the window at all the problems in our life, all the external things that are happening, and say, God, why don't you fix this? Why don't you deliver me from my enemy? Why don't, you, why don't you get rid of the Romans? Why don't you fix this problem that I have? Why don't you do this at work? And why don't you do this in my family? And what about her? And what about him? And what about those people? It is so much easier to go to the window and to look out and see our felt needs and then expect that God is going to just meet all of those than it is to do what the Israelites were not doing in that moment and to do what we often don't do in this moment than it is to hold up a mirror to ourselves and to recognize our greatest need that God promises to fulfill. In Zechariah's confidence, Elizabeth's confidence, it came from their understanding of what God was actually up to here. That it was bigger than just deliverance from enemies. That there was a greater need that had to be satisfied. And it wasn't a need that could be seen by going to a window and looking out of the window. It was a need that could only be seen by holding a mirror up to your face and looking inside. This is how he finishes the prophecy. And you, child, he's talking to his son, John the Baptist, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. So Zechariah is saying there's there's not a full knowledge yet of what salvation looks like. There's a partial knowledge. Here's the full knowledge that you will tell the people. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And Zechariah comes along in his prophecy, and he says, you want to know why my, co- my son is called John? You want to understand why I couldn't speak for nine months when I didn't believe the angel right off the bat? You want to understand why me and my wife, who are far beyond the age of being able to have children, and who spent our whole lives thinking that we were not going to be able to have children, are having this child? It's because God is doing something new, and it's something so much greater than delivering us just from our enemies. God is going to deliver us from what is our greatest need 
need, and that is the forgiveness of the sin that lives in my heart and your heart, and God is going to deal with that in a way that you and I can have relationship with him like we never have before. And my son John is sent here by God to go and to give you the knowledge that this is what the Messiah is here to do. You've been waiting for the Messiah to come along and to meet this felt need to get rid of your enemies. It's so much bigger than that. God has sent my son to prepare your hearts that the Messiah is going to come and he is going to bring forgiveness of sin. And Zechariah is saying to the people, he's saying, you, you expect God to do actions that go along with what you feel is your greatest need. But do you know what you should always expect of God? You should always expect that God will act upon what he sees as your greatest need. We expect that God is going to act upon what we feel like is our greatest need. But what we can expect every single time is that God is always going to act based on what he knows is our greatest need. And in our lives, it's so easy to feel the things that we need God to do. That there's tension in your house. There's tension in your marriage, husband, wife. Uh, there's tension as a parent. There's tensions between your siblings, whatever that looks like. Tensions between the extended family. And it's so easy for us to feel that and to say, God, why don't you just fix all of these things? Or it's so easy for us to go to work and feel the tension and wonder why God just doesn't fix it. Or it's so easy for us to see the problems in other people. And wonder why God just doesn't set them straight. And God in Jesus Christ comes to us and says, listen, through my son, the promises of healing and restoration and provision are going to happen. However, those are not your greatest needs. Your greatest need is to be forgiven of the sin that dwells in your heart and my heart. Something happened a couple years ago in this building. And it took me a while to get over it, so I haven't been willing to talk about it publicly, but I'm going to talk about it now, all right? Don't worry, it's not that serious. I, I set it up too seriously. Some of you are going to remember this the second I say it. A couple years ago, every single Sunday, people walked into this building. They noticed two things. And I saw it the second they walked through the door. They noticed two things. One, they noticed it smelled terrible. You breathe in that fresh air, it smells fine right now, I think. But back then, it did not. And people would walk through that front door every Sunday, and they would go, Pastor, what is that smell? And I would just... I, I would say, welcome to church. It's so glad that you're, so glad that you're here. And then something else was happening too. There were flies everywhere in this building. Does anyone remember this? Some of you remember this, right? I see, I see, has not. You remember. You come in every week and there was a smell and there were flies. And people would say, Pastor, what are we doing about the smell and the flies? And I can tell you that I did for months everything that I could think of and everything that I knew to do to try to deal with the smell and the flies. And every single time people would come on Sunday, it was, it was like we had, we had lost the battle again because we would try all week air fresh. Fresheners and 
fly swatters and the exterminator company and all that kind of stuff. And every single week we would do everything we knew to do to get rid of the flies and get rid of the smell. And then every Sunday, everyone would walk in and they would go, whew, oh, what is that smell? And why? Why are there flies? And I would stand up here and preach and I could see him flying around. And we looked and looked. And eventually we knew there was something dead somewhere in the walls of this building. It's an old building. We got all the exterminator stuff, but something had found its way in and something had crawled somewhere and it was, it was dead in the walls. And we brought in a company that has cameras and they went and they looked their cameras in the wall. We couldn't find it, couldn't do, couldn't do anything. And one, finally, months and months after we started this process, hanging the flypaper, getting the companies, doing all of this stuff. I, I should have bought stock and Glade plugins before this whole thing started because uh, we invested heavily in all of that. We had a leak in, the, in one of the basement classrooms. And to fix the leak, they had to rip the entire wall out. And when you know it, the company came and they ripped down that wall and right there in the wall was the thing that we had been looking for for months. And the insulation in the wall, I won't go into too much detail, but the insulation in the wall had preserved it wonderfully so that it just continued to perpetuate the problem. And they took this, they, they, so I'll never forget, I got this, the only time in my life someone has picked, sent me a picture of like a, a dead rat in a wall, and, and they sent me this picture, and they were like, we, they said, we found it. And what happened was we got the right people here. We took it out. We got Serve Pro here. They, they scrubbed the air. I don't know whatever they do. But you know what happened from that day forward? No more smell and no more flies. Jesus Christ comes into the world. And he heals. And he provides. And he teaches. And he brings peace. But that's all the flies. That's all the smell. That's the symptoms of something much greater that Jesus came to take care of. All the brokenness, all the hurt, all the disease, everything that we have in this world that that is wrong with this world is a result of the sin that dwells in this world and it lives inside of me and it lives inside of you. And so often in our relationship with God, we come to God and we say, God, would you deal with the flies? Would you deal with the smell? Would you fix this? Would you fix that? And the entire time, Jesus is basically saying back to us, God is saying back to us, you have a rat living in your heart and I want to deal with that and then we'll take care of the other stuff. A couple chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, there, Jesus is in a house and he's healing people and he's teaching. It's in Luke chapter 5 and there's these four friends that have a friend that's paralyzed on his mat and they want to bring him to Jesus so that Jesus will heal him so that he can walk. And so they come up to the house but the house is so full of people that they realize very quickly there's no way they're going to get their friend to see Jesus. And so they decide that they're going to go in through the roof. These are good friends. They carry their friend's mat up to the top of the house. They peel back the tiles on the top of the roof, and they lower their friend on his mat down to the floor right in front of Jesus. 
And here's this paralyzed man in front of Jesus. The only reason his friends have brought him there is so he can be healed and walk again. And when Jesus speaks to him, he says something that no one expects him to say. It's in Luke chapter 5, verse 20. And when he saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. That's not why they came. That's not why they showed up. That's not why they, they opened up the roof and lowered their friend down. That's not why they were there. They didn't, they didn't come to Jesus. The text doesn't say they came to Jesus because they knew their friend was paralyzed and he had sin in his heart and, and what he needed was God to forgive him his sins. And so they lowered him down and they said, Jesus is the healer, he will heal him. And Jesus looks at him and he saw that the man was paralyzed, but he saw his heart even more. And just like anyone that has lived on this earth since Adam and Eve, Jesus knew his greatest need was that his sins would be forgiven. And so he says, your sins are forgiven you. And the crowd reacts. I mean, the religious leaders are like, who is this guy that thinks he can forgive sins? And the friends are confused as to why we're forgiving sins and not healing him. And this is what Jesus says. Which is easier to say, he says, your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And it's so important to recognize the order of how Jesus does things here. He does not heal the man because that's the man's greatest need. He heals the man as proof that he is the one who can meet his greatest need, which is the forgiveness of his sin and restoration between him and God. And we ought not get that out of order. I'm not saying to you this Christmas season that you should not come to God and ask him to heal. I'm not saying you shouldn't come to God and ask him to provide. I'm not saying you shouldn't come to God and ask him to restore. He does those things. He has promised to do those things. You should boldly come and ask him to meet your needs. But I am saying the real reason that Jesus came is so that he would meet your greatest need, which is the forgiveness of your sin so that you might be restored to right relationship with God both now and forevermore. And I just wonder, I wonder how long it's been since we've come before God and asked him to forgive us our sin. I bet you've come before God and you've asked him to give you things. I bet you've come before God and you've asked him to do things for other people. When's the last time you came and brought what is your greatest need before him? And if you've never done it before, Repentance of sin is the beginning of relationship with God. This is the first step to beginning relationship with God. You want to be in right relationship with God. You want to have your heart restored. You want to be in a relationship that begins now and goes to all eternity. This is step one, to recognize that Jesus came to meet your greatest need, and your greatest need will not be shown by looking out the window and pointing at all the things happening in the world, but looking into the mirror and recognizing the sin that exists in our own heart. Only God can heal that. My greatest prayer for you this morning, my greatest prayer for you this Advent season is that if you've never asked God to forgive you of your sin 
that you would do it for the first time. And for those of us who have followed Jesus for a long time, if confession, coming before God and repenting, is not a regular part of your routine, that we would begin to do this regularly. To remind ourselves that as we bring our needs before God, our greatest need is that he would transform and restore our hearts. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back as we close this morning. And invite you, if you would, just to bow your head and pray with me for a moment. I'd encourage you even right now this morning, even as we have this moment of prayer, even as we prepare to spend time in this last song, that you would take a moment and that you would come before God and thank him for the forgiveness of sin that comes through Jesus Christ, that you would come before him and that you would lay down all of the the sin that exists in your heart and in my heart. The selfishness, the jealousy, the greed, the lust, all of that that lives there, the pride, the things that we did that we shouldn't have done, the things that we didn't do that we should have done, that we would come before God this morning and receive the forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The good news is that when we bring that before the Lord and we ask for forgiveness because of what Jesus Christ has done, that he doesn't condemn us and he doesn't shun us and he doesn't make us go away. Rather, just like a child coming to their parent, confessing what they've done, God offers you forgiveness and renewal and new life in Jesus Christ. So let's come before him today. And God, I admit to you this morning that I have in my heart and in my life done what I should not have done. And I have not done what you have called me to do. And God, in those areas, I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I repent of those things. And I thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross and be raised again. That I might have forgiveness for those things. Be made new. Have relationship with you. as a community, God, we come before you and we lay these things at your feet. We receive your forgiveness in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and let's close out our service this morning and let's rejoice in the good news that God has sent his son to meet our greatest need.